Welcome to The Forecast. I'm Karen Dow. I'm Cheryl Song. Here, we interview Canada's most prominent real estate minds on a professional and personal level. From the fancy stuff like how they made their fortune to the rough stuff like how they survived the recession and layoffs. We'll also go over market insight, career tips, investment opportunities, and their personal stories. Welcome to the forecast, Salima. Thank you so much, Sharon. We are really, really excited to have you on today. Um, So so we have had um, interactions with Salima in the past, but this is the first time we've been able to kind of sit down and and go over her career history and so uh, and, and kind of where she is um, today. So for our listeners that don't know you, would you be able to give them a quick two minute overview of your resume? Sure. Um, so I have the great honor um, currently to work for a city agency. Uh, create TO. And I say that it's an honor because it really is an opportunity to uh, combine a professional skill set, but for good to work for the people of the city um, uh, in real estate development in the development portfolio. Um, So I manage a portfolio of housing assets or what will become housing assets for the city. Um, Prior to that, I uh, worked at Smart Centers, was built Toronto prior to Creatio, which which turned into Creatio. Um, And then I was at Smart Centers is really where I got my real estate grounding. I I happened to meet uh, Mitchell Goldhar, who was a professor of mine at Rotman uh, during my MBA at the University of Toronto um, and ended up working for him in entering their rotation program. Uh, that they had for for young leaders coming out of school and learned real estate um, from the ground up, had had zero educational background in it. And so I'm really, um, you know, my real estate resume is light because it, it, it really is about just on the job training. It's been, you know, a decade and a half of, of doing this work, but uh, it feels like no time at all. Absolutely. Like, so you did mention, you know, you, your real estate resume is quote unquote light. Um, I noticed that, um, you know, right after your undergraduate degree, you decided to pursue a career in the arts and start in the nonprofit Mm -hmm. sector. Um, That's obviously quite unique. A lot of people just really jump into real estate. They know finance is the way they want to go to. um, And they kind of, you know, they, they hit the ground running first day out of university with like their um, blinders on. Um, can you walk us through your previous experience in the nonprofit sector and how that kind of led you to real estate and where you are, um, or I guess going into your MBA, knowing that you wanted to focus on that discipline? Yeah. So I, um, I, I actually was born and raised in Vancouver and I did my undergraduate degree in business at the Sauter School. Um, at UBC, it was UBC Commerce at the time. It actually didn't get named Sauter until after I left. Um, and it's ironic because they have a phenomenal real estate program there. And um, but it but it was a great it was a great foundation. And I knew that at the time I wanted to come to Toronto because that's where the action was. Um, and I was kind of looking for more and looking for growth. But I fell into a job at the Harborfront Center that really tapped on some passion strings that I have around arts and culture and community. Um, and I was working, I had this just like, it was as if it was a path that was carved out to become an artistic producer, which is not necessarily an easy thing. Um, and again, just, I, I seem to have these series of just like moments of, of intuitive, uh, you know, opportunity, because again, I didn't have arts training didn't go to school. Lots of people do go to school for arts management. Um, but I had just clear passion and worked down at the Harborfront Center producing their summer festival series, uh, which was free to the public. And it was about exposing the public to arts and community and culture, um, which we all know is Toronto's greatest strength. But I was new to Toronto. And so for me, it was this like unbelievable discovery. And I think that was likely one of the strengths that I brought to the role was being able to see it through those fresh eyes um, and just put the talents of Toronto on display. 
But what happened when I was down there was that the waterfront was beginning its very early stages of redevelopment. And so Great Gulf happened to have purchased a set of parking lots that were directly north of the Harborfront Centre to do, you know, what we now know as 8 York um, and, and 260 Queen's Key. Um, and we were redoing the boardwalk in front of Harborfront Centre and that, you know, now extends um, all the way east and all the way west. And so like all of this was just going on in my mind around me and it didn't really, you know, it was just seeds. It didn't really place. But what I felt was, um, you know, I felt the need to go back into the business sector. I loved working in the nonprofit. I loved working with community, but I didn't see myself there in the long run um, as a career. Um, I just didn't see the options. And so when I went back to school, I didn't necessarily know still at that time that real estate was it for me. I, um, you know, I thought maybe something in strategy. I thought maybe something in consulting. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily, you know, I dabbled in social venture capital. Um, I won a fellowship that that took me over to Africa to do some social venture capital work or impact investing, as we call it today. Again, it was its very early stages. So there's sort of these threads that have played those, themselves out in my life. And I would say, you know, the arts, music, um, visual art, like those, those threads are very, very strong. The idea of impact or the idea that like an investment, a financial investment can lead to more outcomes than just financial has been a very strong theme. And that showed up at Rotman as well. Um, and then the idea of real estate and real estate really only was because I happened to take a course. There was a course at Rotman that was a real, it was called real estate development. It was taught by Mitchell Goldhar. It was very popular. And I thought all these people are interested in this thing. I have all these ideas about what's going on in my mind because of what I saw at Harborfront Center. And I was very curious. And so I just let the curiosity lead me. And I had my moment of clarity, like sitting in that classroom where the material that I had literally never been exposed to in a formal way was so intuitive. It just made sense to me. I realized in that moment that I had found my calling. Um, and I use that word not lightly because um, it really was for me. I have found, like, I have no question in my mind that I have found my fit in terms of my career. Um, and it was such a securitist path. It was, you know, it was really just, it came, it came the way that it came. And then I had the opportunity after after that course, actually that course was in first semester of second year. And then I was off to an exchange program in Singapore, actually in the second semester, uh, which was my final semester of MBA school. And, and I went to the National University of Singapore for my exchange and they had a master's in real estate program there. And so I asked special permission to take half my courses in the real estate um, faculty and half of them in the business faculty, just to make sure um, this thought that I had wasn't about this, like, you know, very interesting personality, but rather, you know, the course content itself and the profession and the industry itself. And, um, it definitely got confirmed, um, through that experience as well. That's, that's amazing. So you mentioned that you started, um, with a rotational program at Smart Center. So that's your, basically your first introduction to real estate as a career, and what made you choose land development instead mm -hmm. of, you know, other aspects, you know, like leasing and acquisition? What about land development that was so interesting to you that you decided that's the area you want to focus on? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was really fortunate because I had, um, I started, the rotation program was such that um, I think in my year, there was about 13 of us that came in super bright from either Rotman or Schulich where, where the two schools that they're recruited from. Um, and so everyone started in a different discipline. Like we all started in different disciplines and then rotated through the company. So I started in leasing. Leasing was actually the foundational component of my uh, real estate knowledge, which I think was so incredible because in my work to today, you know, I think about the tenant first. I think about who is the user of the space first because that is how I was trained. 
Um, and then I got a chance to actually move to acquisitions and not, I think I was one of the very few people that got to do that rotation. But again, it ended up being such a foundational part of my, my work, even to today, like my work is so grounded in um, dispositions. And so um, after spending those, those two sort of the first was six months and the next was, I think, close to that as well. Uh, you know, almost a year of doing that work and then moving into construction and engineering and finally into land development. I think for me, land development just put the picture together. It was, I'm still thinking about the tenants. I'm still thinking about how this asset can transact. Um, or when we purchase something, all of those components are in my mind. But if the approvals aren't correct, if we don't get the necessary, you know, value add from the rezoning, all of this doesn't work. So it was just such a key in my mind to, um, you know, the options that I had at the time in front of me. I, um, you know, ultimately that company was structured in 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 silos. So, you know, my job today is not silos. I work across the spectrum A to Z, which I, which I love, and I can could not necessarily imagine not doing that in the future. But in 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 my early years, it was very much siloed. And so I think the choice of land development um, was about being able to still, you know, intersect with the other disciplines in as much as possible, the way that that company was structured. And then I would say that I was really um, intrigued by planning policy. Um, I think the policy elements in planning, um, again, not a formal planner, no education, but having that social justice background, that nonprofit background, I think allowed me to understand the policy and the policy writers and how to actualize that um, in in um, in a different way, in a way that could add value to the company. So it looks like you really um, kind of were able to take experiences from your time before your MBA and then your time at Smart Centers and the different rotational roles and, um, you know, gather those skills and then move over to build Toronto later on, which is now, I guess, transitioned to you to, to create TO. And um, into your current role um, with the leading the Housing Now project. Um, I understand that that's um, integrating affordable housing into Toronto's mixed-use development sites. Um, so, Salima, can you give us a little bit more of an overview of this project that you've been working on for the last, uh, you know, couple of was it years, months now? <laughs> yeah. And also, I'm interested to hear uh, as well, what made you decide to transition from Smart Center to Build Toronto, which is, you know, very much a government uh, agency rather than Smart Center is in, in the private sector. So perhaps you can walk us through like your decision making, um, you know, what made you decide to transit uh, to move to Build Toronto and then also elaborate a little bit about the Housing Now project, which I'm sure you're very passionate about. <laughs> sure. So I'll start with your question, Cheryl, and then I'll, I'll mm. move over to your question, Carrie. I am. Um, and I'll say one more thing about, you know, being able to like take lessons from what seems unrelated and apply them, which is, um, you know, in line with sort of the qu the question of transition from a private sector entity to a public sector entity. When I was working in the arts and, and when you're producing a live festival, as I was with hundreds of thousands of people that will show up, you know, you don't have a lot of room for error you have to execute exactly as your plan. Um, and so it may not be a hundred million dollar or $250 million construction project, but you also have a live audience and you don't really have an opportunity to, 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 you know, redo. So, you know, that precision, I think, um, required a, a, a skill set that was built on, you know, kind of thorough understanding of what you were dealing with, you know, what was the, what, you know, what was the content? What did it require to be successful? How did we have to make sure that we were set up and organized going into it? Um, what happened during it and what happened after? And even so much as like getting artists across the border, um, you know, the paperwork and customs, like contracts, all of that stuff was stuff that I dealt with in the capacity of a producer that shows up in real estate development in different ways. 
And actually in my in my day-to-day now, or I would say even during smart centers, if you realize that something is off, you do have the opportunity to mitigate. You know, it is not a live event. And so the consequences might be higher in terms of, you know, cost of mistake. Um, you know, you're not you're not just paying artist contracts, you have you know a lot on the line, but you also have that opportunity to kind of course correct. But the precision aspect that I picked up in those early years, I think has served me incredibly well. And the organization, the um, understanding how to kind of think through information, a complicated information in a really simple way, um, and able to, in order to communicate that to a wide um, group of stakeholders, as you will, when you're producing an event, um, you know, whether that be through a marketing channel to the to the person, you know, who's coming out to the event or through any of the back, um, you know, background staff or, or ground staff that have to actually be the ones to execute an event or the idea in your mind um, or even through, um, you know, any of the, the vendors or people that you have to contract in order to help you execute. You have to be able to have that communication clear. And so that means you have to have it in an organized manner, in a sensible manner. I did not know at the time that I was building those skill sets. Um, you know, it was just something on the job that was something that you needed to do that I happened to be good at. Um, but it has been um, so incredible. And so much so that like, you know, we're almost, you know, 20 years later, almost. Um, and, you know, two decades, I feel really old because again, I feel like this was just yesterday that that I was doing this. I feel so close to that work. Um, but that, um, you know, I'll, I'll come up with an approach today that is so different than than the way that it might have a communications approach that was so different, um, whether it's visually or the way that we present something to a governance board or, um, you know, a set of stakeholders like politicians. And you can see that there's a freshness in the approach. And it's not fresh to me because it's just the way that I think about it. But you can see from the other side that the way that they, they receive it um, that that the wheels are turning. Um, and so that that's a great feeling. And I do credit that to um I credit that to that time in another industry. It's just picking up best practice from another industry and bringing it over um to an industry that you know is going through evolution now, I would say. You know, it still has a long way to go. Um, so I, I know that wasn't a question that you guys asked, but I just wanted to add that because um, it's something that I think about quite a lot and, um, you know, comes up in conversation here and there as well. Um, in terms of my transition from uh, smart centers to build Toronto, um, it really had to do with where my personal mindset was at the time. I was um, excelling at smart centers. I was um, you know, building projects, getting approvals, working very closely with team, the team environment that they have there, which is which is an amazing thing to have great colleagues. Um, but we were doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and I, you know, I got I got a little bit bored of building a shopping center. I love that we were building shopping centers. It resonated so close to my heart, um, you know, coming from an immigrant family and understanding the value of a dollar and, you know, those things that the company represented about the people that they served um, were really close to my heart. Um, you know, understandably, there was a tension with the planning environment and big box and what that meant uh, sort of on a more global or more economic scale. Um, you know, obviously, I'm much more in tune to that now in terms of, you know, the macro impacts of, of that type of building or that type of tenancy. Um, but, you know, the experiences of growing up where, you value every single dollar you have, or you understand how difficult every single dollar was to earn um, and to be able to deliver that product in markets um, where I could see myself or my family and that really making a difference was meaningful. I I remember an experience um, 
very early days at Smart Centers. It probably was less than six months, maybe six months in, where we were working on a project that was in a lower income neighborhood and we were going door knocking to gain support. And I was with one of the very senior colleagues of mine at Smart Centers who's still there to today. Um, and we knocked on a door of a project um, that was owned by Woodgreen. And I mentioned Woodgreen because now they're, you know, a relevant player in the work that I do today. So, but again, almost, almost uh, 15 years ago, this was. And the guy that opened the door invited us in for tea. And then probably naively we went in and we sat down. Um, and, and I like remember his face and I so distinctly remember the conversation of him saying, if you bring this tenant that we were working on to my neighborhood, the opportunity that it provides me is nothing that it, the government could ever do because of just the price point option that you're providing. The opportunity that you will provide to my children for part-time jobs, the opportunity that will be created because of this change in my neighborhood, you know, and the emotion of that moment. I mean, I still have it to today. So there was this drive that kind of kept me there that that tied to my social side um, that is not obvious at the front, right? Like it is a private company, it's a billionaire owner, it's very successful at what it does. But if you think about it carefully, there is a, a meaningful result, city building result. And I guess that result um, wasn't enough to keep me driving. Like after many years of doing the same thing over, I just, you know, I was wanting more. I was living in the city. I saw the city growing around me, the city of Toronto. Um, you know, I was participating in a lot of extracurricular activities as I do, as I continue to do to today. Um, and I had all these ideas and thoughts in my mind that I, you know, that I felt like I had the skill set to execute on, but I didn't have that venue in my professional work. And I wanted that. And so one of my bosses from Smart Centers actually moved over to Bill Toronto. And at the time that he did, Bill Toronto was led by Lauren Braithwaite, another shopping center sort of guru. Um, and so when the opportunity presented itself, I thought to myself, okay, well, Lauren Braithwaite also ran a shopping center company. And I'm working for someone who I used to work for at Smart Centers. And so while there's a lot of chatter in my ear, um, you know, by sort of people around me about this being the public sector and like, did I know what I was doing? And are you sure that you're doing this move? There was enough there that I thought that I would take the chance. Um, and the enough there was just the opportunity of supply of land. The city of Toronto, we know now today, back then we didn't know, you know, because they're just, they hadn't done the exercise of like, you know, consolidating this, consolidating this information. Another sort of, um, I guess this is another note to the like clear and concise, you know, organized information. But back then they didn't even know. But today we know that 8,000 pieces of real estate within the 416 are owned by the city of Toronto or controlled by the city of Toronto. You know, $27 billion of um, $27 billion worth of assets. Just in the 416, like to think about that, it's just mind boggling, right? Like even to, to you know, Karen, I see you nodding your head, like, you you know, coming from, you know, a finance background, like it's big numbers, right? Like it's a big portfolio. Um, so that was super attractive because land was, land was the issue. Every time I brought an opportunity forward at Smart Centers, it didn't quite fit the mold and we were JV partners with Walmart. And so there was a very specific approach an approach that I learned that serves me greatly today, but didn't necessarily, you know, fulfill that other part of me that was that, that heart beating uh, that was going on, um, you know, kind of at the end of my tenure at, at Smart Centers. That's very inspiring, Salima. It looks like you kind of like really took all the all the pieces that you had, but then also really listened to your gut and listened to your passions and ended up going in that direction. And it seems to have paid off. Yeah, and I, I just realized now that I didn't answer the second I sort of focused on Cheryl's question, but it was a long answer, but lots to say. Um, so I can talk about the Housing Now project if you want, or I can talk a little bit about, you know, in between, because there was a good 
you know, five or six years of Bill Toronto that happened before Housing Now. If you guys want to hear about that. Yeah, yeah let's hear about that and see, like, I, I'd love to know your experience um, initially transitioning from smart centers over to um, Bill Toronto and then how that led you to where you are today and the projects that you're currently working on. Sure. Um, so it was April 2012 that I moved over to, um, I moved over to, to build Toronto. And I remember because I, I had the opportunity to go to Coachella and it was literally the weekend before um, I was starting this new job. So I was there like, in the desert, <laughs> trying to like take it. I remember like Frank Ocean on this like tiny little stage, you know, awesome. um, and me thinking about, oh my God, I'll have to start a new job in two days. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, music is a passion. And so, you know, that was an important an opportunity and I'm so glad uh, to have have had that, um, but I'll always remember April 2012. Um, it was it was a very difficult transition. It was a very difficult transition because um, at Smart Centers, at least in the experience that I had, and I think it, in and I want to say very clearly that I think that my lens at the time was very much colored by you know sort of the relatively junior position that I was in and that I, if I was in a more senior position, this likely wouldn't be the same answer. But to me at the time, it felt like a meritocracy. You know, it felt like if you were delivering results for the company, you would be recognized and you would be rewarded that. Um, and I put that lens on it because I think as a woman of color, as you grow through, um, as you grow through roles, you know, what may feel meritocratic in a junior role isn't necessarily so in a senior role. And I just want to kind of put that out there. And I'm not saying that about smart centers necessarily. I'm just sort of saying that broadly. Um, but I also want to just put the proviso that like this, that was my lens. And when I came to build Toronto, it did not feel like a meritocracy. Um, you know, there was all of the things that I had not learned um, in uh, all of the things about working in a downtown environment, in a bureaucratic environment, in a public sector environment, in a private sector environment, probably too, um, that didn't exist when I was working in the nonprofit sector on the water or, you know, in sort of a big box warehouse up in Vaughan. Um, the politics, the um, jockeying, the silos of you know, I thought that I was coming in to do a job that I had been described to me in a very specific manner by the person that I was working for. Um, but that hadn't been described to all of the colleagues that he had worked with. Um, you know, so I did feel like it was a hard transition because it wasn't, I wasn't necessarily set up um, for success within that company, but more to deliver results to a person that had needed a very specific skill set that I offered. Um, you know, so it was a bumpy couple of months, but as soon as I figured it out and realized that there was this ginormous talent that sat in this office um, and sort of decoupled my loyalty to the person that brought me to the organization from the opportunity to deliver you know, great results, city building results through real estate, through money making, actually, you know, the idea that the profit needed, the profit motive was a necessary condition, um, but it wasn't mutually exclusive to city building, you know, not that, that ability to articulate that in that way, it took me a, a couple months to do that. But as soon as I could, and I started to see that in the portfolio, it was a magical, magical time. It um, was the opportunity to dream projects up that weren't being done in the city, but had the support of the organization because of that dual mandate that we had, um, allowed me to kind of further a personal you know, theory around the fact that doing good in the world doesn't mean that you can't make money. Like you can make money and do good things if you make the decisions, the right decisions. And if you have a perspective, um, a longer term perspective, I, could, I should say, if you have patient capital, you can do as well or better 
um, by, by being good. Um, you know, and I, I got to test it and I, you know, I still believe in that. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people that would argue that absolutely. Um, but I think it comes down to definition as well. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, and I think your earlier career being, you know, the artistic director at Harborfront, um, you know, your work there give you a very different perspective than if you've, you know, fresh out of university started your career at a real estate company, you probably wouldn't, you know, have the same realization and the same, um, you know, purpose driven mindset that you, you know, that led your, that basically is leading your career. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the Housing Now project? Um, and, uh, you know, I have looked into a little bit, very, very, very much needed in the city and very interesting as well. I'm, you know, personally as, you know, um, as someone who have had to, you know, go out, find housing in my 20s when I first moved to Toronto and, you know, and just observing the market being, more and more unaffordable every day. I'm very glad to hear the city is working on something like that. So can you give us a little bit more uh, information about housing now and how you are working with the private sector, the government and uh, the whole picture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I um, So I, I had a, a child in late, very, very late 2018. Um, and returned from maternity leave in the midst of COVID-19, which was, you know, an interesting return back. But I, I had the pleasure to pick up the Housing Now portfolio. So, you know, it was launched in my absence. Um, it was actually a political mandate. The mayor recognized, Mayor John Tory recognized very distinctly the things that you just outlined, Cheryl, that, you know, if this city is going to thrive, it needs to be able to house a population of workers that are, can, you know, contributing to that economic um, uptick. And if we want that to continue, then, you know, we need, we need to actually be able to provide clean housing, affordable housing to people. Um, so they, they launched this program on the basis of workforce housing, so housing for a working population, and that's relative on a housing, you know, on the what we call the housing spectrum to, you know, the shelter system or rent geared to income, which is more social housing um, or affordable home ownership. We're not quite owning homes in this program, but we're also not doing, um, it's, it's not a program for shelters. It's about people who have jobs, people who are employed, um, but that find that the rent levels in Toronto are disproportionate to their incomes that they're earning. Which is probably the majority of people. <laughs> a lot of people. Um, a lot of people. And a lot of people wouldn't even realize probably that they, um, that that's an expectation, right? Like rent is what it is. They pay for what it is. And then they deal with what they have. And they have to make very difficult decisions in their life about, do I feed my child or do I pay for my rent or whatever else it is. Um, but, you know, this program is targeted at those people. So the working population, our neighbors, you know, I, you know, I think we were talking to Cheryl earlier about it, it's targeted at the people that take care of my son every day at childcare. You know, those people that I have great admiration and respect and love for who I entrust my child with on a daily basis. Um, you know, those are the people that we are talking about, uh, in this program. So again, you can feel probably in my voice that there's a great, um, you know, driver for, for this work with me. And I felt very lucky and very blessed to be handed the program, um, you know, returning from maternity leave. Um, the, the program itself right now is 17 sites. It's all within the 416. They're all transit oriented sites. Um, we're, our target over 10 years is 10,000 affordable units. Over the 10 sites today, I mean, sorry, the 17 sites today, we have about 12,500 residential units. Um, of those, about 5,000, about 4,500 are affordable rentals. So we're almost at halfway to our target. Um, you know, construction value on the project is about four and a half billion. So it's a, a huge, um, huge, huge portfolio. And the program is designed in order to leverage, you know, 
each sector, public, private, and nonprofit, and what they do best. Um, and I feel really uniquely positioned to be able to um, to lead this work for Creatio. There is also major uh, leadership from the city of Toronto. So we're an agency, a real estate agency. We have ownership over executing the program, but the program is actually owned by the housing secretariat, who's experts in housing, who design the housing policy, as well as our planning department, because we are doing uh, real estate development projects here. And so that planning lens is incredibly important around complete communities and making sure that we're delivering um, you know, on what our official plan says and that we're, we're building the kind of city that we, you know, we've agreed collectively through those policy documents that we want to have. Um, but, um, you know, but in terms of creativity, I feel very, um, I feel very uniquely positioned because of my past experiences, you know, having been um, spent five years in the nonprofit sector, having spent five years in the private sector and now having spent almost 10 in the public sector, there is this intersectionality that comes um, when you have cross-sectoral collaboration that is not possible in any other venue. You know, there are these gray spaces of overlap where really special things can happen when you bring sectors together. Um, and that's a place where you can solve big, hard problems. You know, it's not a problem that the private sector housing, workforce housing is not a problem that private sector can solve on their own. Unless you expect the private sector, um, you know, takes less profit or does something uncharacteristic of the private sector, it's not going to get solved there. It's not a problem that the pop nonprofit sector can solve alone unless again, you know, we bring incredible subsidies forward, which then, you know, we're on the backs of the public sector. It, it is about each sector bringing forward the unique um, competency that each of them have. And so the private sector, sorry, I'll start with the public sector. The public sector, in this case, we land. You know, we have incredible amounts of land that we're able to vend into these programs. And that's what contributes to the affordability here. We are not talking about cash subsidies. We're actually talking about taking residual land value um, from the land opportunity and pumping that back in to create the affordable housing opportunities. Um, the private sector's ability to construct, to finance, to market and deliver efficiently and effectively the programs is required. And the nonprofit sector's ability to ensure that these um, units are going to those that need them most um, is also paramount. So there is a huge and important role for each of the sectors here. And I would say that even within government, that the municipal government can't do it on its own either. It needs all levels of government to contribute, which they are today. Um, you know, we have and a program by CMHC, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, um, has put out through the National Housing Strategy, the Federal National Housing Strategy, a uh, rental construction financing initiative, which is a financing program that the private sector can access for projects that are rental construction, which which ours are, um, that allow you know the whole formula to come together. Um, and so the way that we've designed this is to look very carefully at every single one of those levers and kind of push push everything to the edge. So deliver the maximum amount of affordability by, um, you know, understanding the financing alternatives, understanding the maximum density, pushing on, you know, you know, lower parking ratios, taking advantage of fee waivers and subsidies, asking council to put aside property taxes for the affordable units, you know, just a series of um, opportunities layered on each other that create this end result. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about how you determine a site? A, a site? What's sure. that process like? Sure. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's part of, I, I always use the analogy um, when I'm talking about real estate development of the layer cake. 
you know, any layer in particular is not necessarily complicated. I would say that you guys would probably agree with me, but it's the the putting the layers together that is the complex part. It's finding that pinhole of, you know, the hundred layers of cake that actually meets all the way through. And so land is one of the layers. So in and of itself, the land selection is, you know, going through the, the portfolio. I have great colleagues within Creatio who, um, you know, know the, the city's portfolio well, understand the needs that we have for the program, you know, must be suitable for rental construction, has to be transit oriented, must be within sort of some kind of apartment neighborhoods or mixed use designation. You know, we're not really looking to do too many official plan changes here unless there's a huge opportunity on the table, um, you know, and go from there. There's two characteristics, I would say, if we were to bucket all the Housing Now sites today, like the 17 sites that we have, there was a series of sites that offer, that are large and medium offer, you know, thousands of units. Like those, those are, you know, the, the first chunk of, or we'll say for phase one, we have two phases of Housing Now that Council has approved sets of sites. So the first set, what the first phase was 11 sites, the second phase is six sites. That first 11 sites had some super huge and media opportunities um, that will make a huge impact, right? Like at, at the end of the day, when we get those delivered, there'll be thousands of sites that are delivered to the market. And then there's a second series of sites that are smaller and there are more hundreds of sites. There are one tower, two tower sites. And, and I would say that's the, you know, that's the characteristic of the two. So infill, parking lots, or sites that are sort of remnant, not doing much, they were other uses and not, not those uses now, or um, oper- like ro- properties that we had taken for road widenings that never happened, or, you know, those types of, of opportunities. Um, and then the huge meaty ones that were other uses that we've relocated and, and now created an opportunity for housing. In the meatier, chunkier properties, while they create great opportunity and we need to continue to do them, they take a little bit longer. Um, and the smaller infill sites go a little bit quicker. And so I think it's important for us to always have a mixture of these because um, one thing that is foundational for housing now is the quick delivery of housing. Like we need, this is a problem that is in the city now. And we all know the real estate development timeline is not you know, a year or two, it's, it's longer than that. And so we need to always have a series of of projects going in order to help solve this problem. So Salima, once you do select those sites, how do you um, how do you determine what uh, nonprofit partner you want to work with, as well as um, institutional or private developers that kind of will come together and make this formula work? Thank you for the question. Um, so right now, actually, we have. Um, we're in the infancy stage of the Housing Now program. You know, we've delivered our first, we're about to announce our first partner, um, and they're about to submit their site plan application and get under construction on the first on the first project. That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. No, it's a huge, huge, huge. I'm so happy to be here for that milestone, too, to have helped contribute to that. Um, the first and the second will come very quickly after that, and the third very quickly after that. Um, but, you know, we're testing out approaches. And so I'll speak about the approach that we use, but then I'll also speak about an alternative approach. Um, all of our direction on housing now is it comes from the city council. The city council is the, is the governance body that Creatio also has governance. We have a board, um, but city council tells us how they want things done. They are the policy dictators of the city of Toronto. And so they've said to us very clearly that we need to involve all the sectors, but that we also need to make opportunity for nonprofit only projects as well. Um, And that is specifically because when a nonprofit owns a project, you know, the surety that it will be affordable in the long run. And these are 99 year leases that we're doing on housing now. So 99 year land leases, um, you know, will be there. Um, So we have a certain set of sites, a small number of sites that are dictated to the nonprofits. I'll put those aside. The City of Toronto's Housing Secretariat runs those programs. They always have. They do it in the way that they always have done it. It, It's not a new thing. Um, You know, they work, they they do an open call to the market on an offering document to a nonprofit group and, and the, you know, responses come back. On the larger, chunkier pieces that are more attractive to the private sector, where there is more profit opportunity, 
um, and the ones that we sort of released today, we use brokerage. Um, so we currently are working with a brokerage, oh, actually I have to renew the brokerage contract. I have to go out to market for a new brokerage um, as one of my first tasks back in, in January. But we work with brokerage um, on releasing that opportunity in the private sector fashion. So we put together uh, electronic data room, we put together a confidential information memorandum. It is a very thorough. Um, I have the personally have the approach that transparency for us in the offering process will lead to faster results um, in the deal-making process and more and less risk for all parties involved. So any piece of information, positive or negative, would be placed in that data room. You know, if there's issues with soils, if we have problems on zoning, if there is anything around servicing, um, you know, upsizing needed or, or whatever the case may be on the real property, on the zoning, on the project itself, in any fashion whatsoever, all of that information, whatever we know, will be made available to the market in the offering process through that electronic data. What else we do is we put together a very strict list of requirements. And so this is these this is a housing program. It's not a program of land for a developer to do what they would want with. Um, so we say, um, we say in our submission requirements, we call them, you know, these are the things you must provide us. We need to have comfort in who you are, that you can execute on this. So show us how you're, how, what you've done in the past and, and give us confidence that you can do this in the future. We need to know that your covenant is strong. You know, this is government land. You're working with a complex set of stakeholders, including people like the TTC and the nonprofit sector, um, you know, we can't have there be financial failure. So we need to, you know, confirm your covenant. Um, we need to see how your numbers look. Show us that you can do the performance. Show us that you are able to understand the intricacies of this project and what it means in, in year five and year seven and year 10 at refi. Is it going to work for you? What is going to happen? Because we don't want a failure in year 15 either. You know, we can't have a failure at year one. We definitely can't have a failure at year 15. So we want to see that you've done the thinking um, and that you understand what's going to happen when that CMHC money turns into, you know, regular, uh, you know, a regular debt service um, with the CMHC insurance service. We also ask that, um, you know, we, we ask that you have thought through what we're offering and see if you can push the boundaries on anywhere. You know, do you as a developer have an opportunity to be more efficient with energy? Are you going to push the boundaries on what we're requiring as minimum Toronto Green Standards? Or can you do more? Could you do nonprofit housing? Could you do more affordable housing with supports, you know, where can you make this project special as a developer? And every developer has a different take on that. They have different relationships that they've brought to the table. They have different experiences that they've brought to the table. Most of the developers that are interested in this work have dabbled in it in some form or the other, um, whether that's through the regular planning process or through, you know, their own interest. Um, and so the results have been awesome. You know, there's been a tremendous interest um, uh, through that process of, of working working with brokerage. So the, them being able to speak the language of the of the private sector, um, but doing it with the set of kind of public sector requirements attached to it. You know, a minimum amount of affordable housing, a minimum amount of family housing, growing up guidelines. Um, you know, all of the things, like, and I can, I can go through the list, but it's yeah, really long and, and boring for most. <laughs> you just, you just basically answered all our following questions. <laughs> I don't even need to ask them. Um, okay. So last what, what, question. What I would ask though, what I would say though, Cheryl, is that that's what we're doing today. Yeah. What I'll explain also is that what we thought is the best approach is that we zone the property and we take it out at zoning for the mm -hmm. developer to complete the rest of the planning application. We've done that for two reasons specifically. One, because we've taken taking zoning risk off the table. Um, you know, we're, we're 
speed to market is really, really important in this program. So by us zoning it, we're doing that in like six months or eight months. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're shortening the timeline. We're, we're taking risk off the table. I would say that's sort of the first two reasons. The last reason is because a critical element of making these projects affordable is that CMHC financing. You know, they're incredibly low interest rates, like, yeah. you know, 100 basis points or less off of what you'd get in the private market. Um sorry, I should say 100 basis points or more, uh, you know, discounted at what you get in the private market plus, you know, really high leverage rates. So, you know, that that element, the program doesn't work without that element. And CMHC needs to understand that the site is zoned before they'll accept an application. So that financing risk is huge for us. And by us zoning it, we're limiting that financing risk. We have heard feedback from the private market to say that they would like to zone the properties because we're doing our best. Um, you know, we're what we what my colleague Annalie Zania planning says is, uh, you know, we're zoning a loose fitting shirt and that the developers come in and they tailor it. But that is not necessarily perfect. You know, maybe they want to tailor it fit perfect. Um, at the outset, and they think that that's a, a faster and better approach. So we're testing that on a site coming up in Scarborough at 2444 Eglinton Avenue East. And if that works out and it's better, you might see us do that more often. So nothing is set in stone. I think we're here to listen to the market, take feedback and make the program better and better and better and better so that it does what it's supposed to do for housing, but that the developers are, are seeing this as something that they want to participate in and have interest in, and that the nonprofit community sees it as a pipeline for opportunity to fulfill, you know, the great mandate about affordable housing out there as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so last question about housing now is sure. what is your favorite part of your job? Um, the fav my favorite part of my job is is working with the incredibly motivated people that work on this program. It is, um, it is not often in life where you have the opportunity to be so aligned with so many on an outcome um, across sector, across industry. Um, and it is just that the people are the drivers. That's awesome. Um, I think it's always really important to surround yourself. First of all, I guess, like, um, do something that you're passionate about, which it sounds like you're doing, but also surround yourself with people who can make that, uh, you know, get you get you to your end goal and make that, uh, that project that you're working on come together and come to life. So that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm happy that, uh, uh, that it's, you know, everything's going well post your mat leave and, you know, you're able to kind of come in and um, hit the ground running. Can I, just, can I just give a shout out to the team? Because this is, you know, I get to sit here and talk about stuff a lot, but it is not me who does the work. You know, it's me who sees the work, who has ideas about what we should do, who gets to, you know, think about new approaches. But the team um, inside CreateTO is, and inside city planning and the housing secretariat and all of our partners, um, it has just been coming back from that leave and just like seeing this alignment and getting to work with these people has been the greatest joy. And it is just such an, you know, such a privilege to, to work with them. And thank, thank you guys for the incredible, incredible work. Well, with that, um, I would like to move us over to like some personal questions just to wrap up the podcast because I know we've been talking about your career and, you know, how you got to where you are now and housing now. But um, can you tell us something that's not reflected in your resume or your career path um, that we've been covering for the last hour? Um, I, I would say that like what you don't see um what you don't see on my LinkedIn or, um, you know, in my work is just the importance of family. Um, it's number one for me and it's the backbone of everything. Um, and I, and I do a lot, you know, I, I'm out there, I, I volunteer a lot, I sit on boards. It's a huge part of, of what fulfills me. Um, but often it's surprising for people to see that when they learn that, 
um, family is important that's surprising to them because there's all this other stuff going on, but it's almost because of family that there is all that stuff going on. Um, nothing would be possible without, without my incredible family. So since you mentioned family and uh, we know you have, uh, I guess, a toddler now, <laughs> uh, how's working from home going? Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's, um, you know, there's positives and negatives about everything. And I try to focus on the positives to get through. Um, the opportunity to cook cook every meal for my son right now is, um, you know, one that I won't forget. And I think, you know, is a great silver lining. Is it tough in moments like this when we're trying to have a conversation and like, you know, something happened in this classroom around COVID. So he's home today and that was unplanned. You know, those moments are tough. And I have just the most incredible husband who supports me in that way. Um, but it's also been really amazing to see, you know, mommy's work through the eyes of a toddler sitting in front of the computer and him wanting to work or the conversations that we have and how they pick up on that um, and repeat it back to you. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonder of life. That's amazing that, you, you know, I've talked to other colleagues too who have uh, are in the same boat where they have a young toddler at home and they're actually quite excited to see them grow up, you know, and have opportunities to see things where they wouldn't otherwise um, with, you know, so I think, yeah, you're right. There is a, a silver lining and a blessing within this pandemic. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure if without this pandemic, we were probably in a boardroom somewhere all like, you know, dressed quite nicely. <laughs> all of us are in sweater. Yeah, you, you guys look beautiful. I'm wearing a sweatshirt. I'm something mom like right now. <laughs> you, should see, you should see the bottom part. I'm wearing uh, really not flattering pajama pants. And anyhow, and my dog is in the background. <laughs> so, um, anyway, um, so uh, to kind of um, wrap up, um, what is the, what are the three things that you would tell your younger self? Um, imagine Salima just uh, finishing up MBA and about to, you know, go to Smart Center. Uh, what, what are the three things that you would tell her? Um, I would say, you know, listen to yourself trust yourself and like believe in yourself those are great lessons i think um yeah i think a lot of the times like we especially when we were younger there's a lot of like fear of the unknown like oh my god like what does the future look like um but actually or you are so afraid to take a, a step or take a leap of faith and join this company, go on this path because you don't really know what the future holds, but you know, no one really know what the future holds. And especially when we're younger, one of the biggest currency that we have is time. You know, you have the time to make the mistakes. You have the time to go on the wrong path. And then, you know, like start off your career in as artistic director and then moved into real estate and, you know, into development and then align, eventually align with your, your calling or passion about doing something good and, you know, building housing for, you know, your son's future uh, kindergarten teacher. Yeah. So it's, it's all an evolving path. Um, yeah. So kudos to you. And Thank I don't you. think a lot of people can, can, can say that, that what they're, you know, working on is aligns with their skill sets, their passion and their purpose. So Congratulations, Salima. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I, I mean, I say listen, trust, and believe because I feel like a lot of the times when, you know, I've fallen off the tracks or it hasn't gone quite right, it's when I'm wound up about something. I'm nervous about something. I'm trying to prove something. I'm trying to show the people that I can or do, you know, and, and I was actually thinking about this this morning, you know, kind of just thinking about our discussion and just like when you relax a little bit and just know that you do good work, you work from a place of integrity and honesty and like it is seen. It is, it is seen. It's, it's not a meritocracy. It's not, but 
Um, but you don't always have to prove it to others. You just have to prove it to yourself. I think that's a really good takeaway and a great way to wrap up our conversation. Um, Salima, thank you so much for taking the time out of uh, your busy, busy week to chat with us. Um, and, you know, we look forward to hearing your updates um, for the rest of 2021. Thanks, guys. It's so amazing to see you guys. And I um, I was telling my husband this morning, like, about you, about you and about your events and, you know, how it's translated uh, over COVID and you've taken the opportunity to launch the pod podcast, which I'm sure will continue even when the in-person events come back. And so I just um, feel lucky to have met you guys too. So thank, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. Amazing. Thank you, Salima. Thank you for listening to The Forecast. Forecast is part of the Future of Real Estate Association. Be sure to visit fortoronto.com, that is F-O-R-E toronto.com, to check out our upcoming events and subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed our episode today, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. See you at the next episode.